following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Okay, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 13 this morning is where we're going to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Probably, the this is the most famous chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we are in a series through 1 Corinthians. And next to Psalm 23, 1 Corinthians 13 is probably the most quoted chapter in the history of the world. Um, I did a wedding yesterday. I, I purposely do not use 1 Corinthians 13 in a wedding. The reason for that is it's normally used in a wedding. So I use other things in the wedding um, because I want people to think differently about a few things. But this, this, this chapter is quoted at weddings. It's used in poems. It is taught more thoroughly about than probably any chapter in the New Testament. And the reason for that is the, is the topic. And it's the topic of love. This chapter is considered to be a mountaintop of human experience. But one of the things that happens when we get to 1 Corinthians 13 is we have a tendency to pull it out of context. Now, here's why this is important. This chapter was written to a church that wasn't very loving. Matter of fact, it's probably the most divided church in the New Testament, even though it's probably the most gifted church, maybe in the history of civilization. They were divided. They didn't like each other very well. They fought over their favorite leader. They flaunted their immoralities, even bragged about them. They put their liberties above their relationships. They ranked each other's spiritual gifts. They put themselves first. They showed favoritism. They put others down, all the while thinking they were doing pretty good and they're pretty godly. This chapter was written to a divided church. But it's also in a funny place in the book. Because it's right in the middle of this discussion that Paul has been talking about spiritual gifts. Beginning in chapter 12, Paul gives instructions about spiritual gifts. And the reason he did this is because the Corinthian Christians thought that people who did miracles, who taught and were great teachers, who could speak with hidden mysteries and about hidden mysteries, were the elite of the elite in Christendom. But people who didn't have such gifts were just ordinary people, really did not belong at all in the upper tier, upper echelon of the church. And so you had a church that was in chaos over these issues. And right in the middle of that discussion, right in the middle of that conflict, Paul writes a chapter on love. It's intentional. You can see how intentional it is. Look back with me at the, the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 12, and you're going to notice a little phrase that's very interesting. And Paul says, and I will still show you a more excellent way. Now, because of the depth and the precision of 1 Corinthians 13, many theologians and historians believed that it took Paul a few days to write it. It's only about 13, 14 verses. It's not very long. And if you don't know much about Paul, what Paul usually did when he wrote his books was Paul would speak them and a secretary would write them down. So you can imagine, just put yourself in this room with Paul the Apostle for a moment. You're the secretary, and you've been writing 1 Corinthians 12. You've been going through the book, writing about all the conflicts and what the answers are to the conflicts. You get to 1 Corinthians 12, and you're talking about how the church body should function like the spiritual body and the physical body, how the hand and the feet, they work together with the eyes and the ears. And that's how the church should work together, each part playing their part. Each one should honor one another. And Paul says, 
I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And then he just stops. Takes a deep breath. And he says, though I speak for the tongues of men or of angels and have not love. And then he just slowly begins to deliberately walk around the room thinking about love. If you're that secretary, you're probably sitting there wondering, wait, 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 we've just been rattling off here about spiritual gifts. The very issue the Corinthians are dealing with, why are we transitioning to love? Well, here's why I think Paul did this. This is the big idea in your outline. If you're new with us, you should have got an outline when you walked in. And we always give a big idea when we start. And here's kind of the idea I think Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 13. Love for others is the preeminent picture of the Spirit's work in Christians. Love for others is the preeminent picture of the Spirit's work in Christians. In other words, what God is telling us, what He's telling the Corinthian people, is that spiritual gifts are not the true picture if people are spiritual or godly. But love is. What what many don't realize when you do the study of spiritual gifts is you'll find every spiritual gift listed in the Bible were all done in the pagan temples in Corinth. Every spiritual gift. You could have found every gift being on display at those same temples. The only difference that Paul would make in the Christian church is love is preeminent, spiritual gifts aren't. This is so critical in in the world we live in right now. We love to honor the most talented and the most gifted. Think about who graces the ESPN top 10 highlights every night. Who's on the main headlines of the news? Who graces the covers of the magazines? We start this really young too. When I was growing up, we had what they called tag classes, talented and gifted classes. Remember those? Or AP classes, advanced placement for the kids who are above the other kids. We do internships for those that are the up and coming. And those with the most talents and most gifts are the ones who have the most followers. Parents, if you're old enough right now, you should be able to visit with your child. He's probably a teenager and ask them what they want to do with their life. And many of them will say, I want to be a YouTube influencer. And you go, what, what, what exactly is a YouTube influencer? Just do a little research and realize, uh, yeah, you do the research, right? It's how the world functions right now. But here's a challenge we also do in the church. We put the gifted ones on a pedestal. We exalt the miraculous above the ordinary. And some think that spiritual gifts are needed because they say something about us. And hopefully we'll get noticed by others. If you knew the amount of young men that I've had to mentor in ministry and have had to tell them at the beginning and the outset of our discussion that pastoring has nothing to do with celebrity status and how shocking that is to them, you would be amazed. When I encourage them to help them realize pastoring means you smell like sheep. You're in the middle of pain. You're in the middle of sorrow. And when you get up in front of people to preach the gospel, it is not about you. It's about serving them with the word of God. They they don't understand where you're coming from. And to watch the young men leave ministry because it didn't do anything for them is enough to make your head spin. 
We think spiritual gifts are preeminent, all the while ignoring character and spiritual fruit. So last week, a friend of mine, Diana Thomas, a, a pastor from Liberia, posted this meme that I thought captured it pretty well. Here's a line for gifts of the Spirit and prophetic training, and there's a load of people lined up. And then here's a line over here with fruit of the Spirit and character development. There's nobody there. Which line would you get in? This is why 1 Corinthians 13 is placed in the middle of a church letter about division and in the middle of a section of Scripture where people were ranking each other's spirituality based on gifts. As the Beatles would say, all we need is love. The only issue with the Beatles song was the love they were talking about is not the love that Paul was speaking about. Because the love that Paul will talk about is the love that God works in us, which is superior to any love that John Lennon or Paul McCartney wrote about. So let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7 <clears throat> together. We're going to take a couple weeks in 1 Corinthians 13 because it's such a critical chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Father, this section of Scripture is something that many of us are very familiar with. But I pray that you take something that is familiar and reveal to us the deep need that we have for the power of God to work within us. We simply cannot do 1 Corinthians 13 without the power of God. And I pray that you'd help us see that this morning and turn our attention to the, the only one in the history of the universe who has loved perfectly. And in turn, change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Now let's, let's start this by looking at the first point in your outline, which is the greatest of these is love. You'll see this in verses 1 through 3. Now, if you haven't been with us in this study, here's a bit of background. It'll be a reminder for the rest of us. And I'm going to do this throughout the series because one of the things I think we have to do with 1 Corinthians 13 that is really important is keep it within context. We have the tendency to pull it out and then go through and define all the terms and say, see how this applies to you now. Instead of asking a big question, what was Paul trying to say to these people? What was the context of this? Why, why did Paul feel so burdened to bring this chapter to this group of people at that time and then learn the lessons from that that we can apply? So on some Sundays at this church in Corinth, when they'd gather in one of their homes for church, 
people would give their friends the best seat in the house. And then they'd give them the best food off the table at their potluck. They would literally then put the, the poor people outside and not let them in. Ignoring people, keeping them at arm's length. It'd be similar if we had church in here and we said, this is for certain people, that out there is for other people. Even though you claim the name of Jesus. Yet, all the while, the Corinthian Christians thought they were acting like spiritual giants. On other Sundays, people would show off their spiritual gifts. Whether that was the prophet trying to tell people the future, or a healer trying to show off his ability to heal somebody. Or then you had people who could speak in a variety of languages because Corinth was a port city where lots of languages came into that city. And they would stand up and speak in foreign languages and people would be mesmerized even though they had no idea what people were saying. All the while thinking, this is really godly, and it's the height of spirituality. And it's to that church that Paul writes verses 1 through 3. And I want to read them again, because knowing the background will help you see what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. And here's what he, or 12, 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul does in these verses is he takes the things that the Corinthian Christians were mesmerized by, and he shows them how secondary they are to Christian love. You could speak with the tongues of uh, from earth or from heaven. You could know all mysteries that nobody else knew, which to the Greek mind would have been amazing because Greeks loved mystery. They loved philosophy. They loved truth. You could have such faith that you could tell that mountain to go into the sea. You could give away everything you owned. You could give up your life as a martyr. But notice the only phrase that is repeated. But if you have not love. If you have not love, and if every parent in the room, whoever bought your kid a drum stand understands this, it's like a five-year-old banging on the cymbals in your house. Just a clanging over and over again, a noisy gong going off. He says, you are nothing and you gain nothing. See, to the Corinthians, to them, if they express a spiritual gift, they were something and they had gained something. Paul says, absolutely, you're actually nothing. And he gained nothing. These words could not be more poignant and pointed to the Corinthian church who bragged about their gifts, flaunted their elitism, and favored those who they thought were spiritual. They were divided, mean-spirited, and arrogant. And Paul's point is really clear. You can have all the gifts in the entire universe, but if you don't have love, it gains you nothing, and it means nothing. Love is to be preeminent. Gifts are not. If gifts are not used in love, they're like a a blowhorn going off behind your head. It's a great point of evaluation for us. How do you value love? How do you value love above gifts? To put this in context, several years ago, when I first started preaching and my wife and I were uh, married, I would travel and preach a lot. And people invited me to come preach. And they talked about the great communication gift that I had and the ability to communicate God's truth. And they thought it was amazing. I had one problem, though. I didn't love the people I was preaching to. 
So I'll never forget one time, Jill and I were up in Salem and we were, uh, I'd preached and got done and delivered the goods like I always thought I did, brought the, the word of God, delivered it, and it was a hard word. After the service was over, Jill and I got in the car and Jill did, did what Jill does to me normally. She used word pictures. She's a fantastic word picture person, draws out this great example. And she said, you know, when I was a young girl, remember when I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a nurse? I said, yeah, I, I do remember you want to be a nurse. And she said, I remember I, I want to go to Linfield. I said, yeah, I remember that very clearly. She said, well, I, I know today now why God wanted me to be a nurse. I said, really? Huh? Why? She said, well, when you go deliver the word of God like you do, you bring a broadsword with no love. And I have to come behind and clean up the mess. So what if you decided to use the truth of God, combining it with the love of God, and use the word of God like a scalpel? Then I could help you. Do you value love above talent? Do you value love above gifts? It is true, isn't it? And I've had to learn this through the years that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care for them. So here's the question. Does your love for other people match the importance that God puts on love? So here's the question we have to ask. Why love? I mean, why why does Paul and God make love so preeminent? Why? Why is Paul concerned about letting love lead the way in our dealings with other people? Well, we, we know. We know from the Bible that love for God, love for others is the greatest commandment. We know that from Matthew 22, that we are to love God with all of our heart and we're to love others as ourselves. It's the, it, we know that love is preeminent because it's God's top priority in our lives. If you were to list, what is God's top priority in your life? It'd be love God and love other people. That's why you've heard me say over and over again, don't worry about your spiritual gift as much as love God, love others, and see what happens. But we also know from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, that God is love. And those who love like this reveal they're born of God, which reveals that love is preeminent over spiritual gifts because genuine love is a sign that we're truly born again. But even more pointed, I think, to the Corinthian church and even more pointed to this text is Jesus' words in John 13, 35. It's very familiar. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. See, the Corinthians were not representing Jesus very well. Then their divisions revealed it. Their lack of love for one another was an affront to the power of God and a black mark on the name of Christ. Love is preeminent because it reveals the reality of God's work among God's people to a world that desperately needs to see how God can unite people from every race, every tribe, and every tongue. Love is preeminent because it reveals the power of God to change us to where we can actually honor one another in our differences and we can actually forgive one another in our sins. Now just think how crucial this is and how critical it is. 
This chapter, and we, we forget this, this chapter was written to a church. It was written to a congregation just like Covenant Life Fellowship in the sense. A group of people. Yes, you can apply this chapter to your marriages, to your family, to your friendships, but it was primarily written to a divided church. So you can't just pull it out and say it doesn't apply here. No, it primarily applies to the church. And here's why. In the church, we will experience hurt. In the church, people will sin against us. In the church, people will say mean things about us. In the church, others will be honored before us. In the church, injustices will happen and talented people who are arrogant will be elevated at times. In the church, all bad things will happen because we exist in the church. If you find the perfect church, don't join it. You will mess it up. Just get that clear, right? But in the church, love must win the day because Christ is to win our hearts. Love in the church through hardships, challenges, hurts, grievances, reveals the power of God to a world that is naturally divided. It shows the world that there's a power so real that we can love those who hurt us, we can forgive those who sin against us, and we can honor those who are different from us. Paul's point is clear in 1 Corinthians all the way through it, but really in 1 Corinthians 13, Christian love is the preeminent portrait of the Spirit's work in the Christian and the preeminent portrait of the Spirit's work in the church. Not spiritual gifts. Listen, if we ever wanted to take our gifts and compare them to Corinth, we would fail. We we would look like a a little two-year-old trying to do spiritual gifts. They were giants in spiritual gifts. They were way more gifted than any church I've ever been a part of. Their issue was not spiritual gifts. Their issue was love. So understanding that love is preeminent then, Paul then jumps into the next section, which is showing us what love is. And we're going to see this in verses 4 through 7. Each phrase in verses 4 through 7 is deliberate and it is intentional. But here's what you have to do with it. You've got to keep the Corinthian church in the backdrop as you read it. You've got to see as you read these phrases what was happening in that church and why Paul would use these particular words for them. And when you read these words, I want you to notice something when you read them. Notice the spirit, the deep trust in the spirit's work in other Christians. And then also notice the warmth, the respect, the regard for other people that's listed. So again, let's just look at it again. Verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now in this list, you'll notice 15 descriptions of love's action. You'll notice there's seven positives, what love does. Love is patient, it's kind, rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You're going to notice eight negatives. 
What love does not do. It does not envy. It does not boast. Is not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on its own way. Is not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And you'll notice that love is listed as active. It's a verb. Meaning, love is not primarily a feeling. It's an action. Now, that doesn't mean that love isn't a feeling. Love is a feeling. But it's primarily an action. Something that you actually do to reveal the feeling of love. Now again, let's put these things in the backdrop of the Corinthian church. These people were so envious of one another and coveting each other's possessions that according to chapter 6 of this book, they were willing to take each other to lawsuits and file lawsuits against one another in, 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 in civil courts. To that church, Paul told them that love bears all things, endures all things, is not envious, does not insist on its own way, and is not resentful. They were so arrogant that they bragged about their freedoms and liberties to the point they were horrifically immoral, bragging about the immorality going on inside of their church as we saw in chapter 5, and they ran roughshod over one another's consciences with regard to food and drink as we saw in chapters 8 through 10. To that church, Paul said, hey, listen, love isn't like that. Love is kind. Love is not rude. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And to a church that aligned under certain gifted leaders and didn't have time for lesser people in their church, as we saw in chapters 1 and chapter 11, Paul said, hey, listen, love is patient. Love believes all things and love hopes all things because love sees the Spirit of God at work in God's people and believes that God is doing a work in them. See, See, in this fantastic chapter on love, It doesn't just describe what love is, where we go, okay, love is patient, love is kind, and let's see how we line up with that. No, what he does is he says, let me show you something different. This is the remedy for what sickens the Corinthian divided church. These people, they needed love, not spiritual gifts. They needed love, not powerful leaders. They needed love, not their liberties. Now, do you, do you see, when you read it through that lens, how this message is for every church for all time who better pay very close attention? Do you see why? It is for 21st century Roseburg, Oregon, Covenant Life Fellowship, right now, right here. And listen, if you've been here for very long, you've heard me say this once or a hundred times. And I pray I, that, Lord willing, I will keep saying it, and that the Lord will continue to protect us from it. We are always one Sunday away from being the divided Corinthian church. You know why? Because I'm here. Because you're here. And what is the remedy or the hope to keep us from that? What's well, 1 Corinthians 13? It's love. But it's love that is manifested by trust and hope in the power of the gospel. Now here's why I say this. I want you to see this very clearly. 
So right now in our world, it's, it's, in my lifetime, it's one of the most divided times I've ever known. Right? In my lifetime. I've talked to others of you who lived through the 60s and uh, were in the L.A. riots and a variety. Of, and you said, hey, yeah, you, know, eh, you know, Portland's kind of a small scale thing to what went on down there. Okay, you were there. I wasn't. I trust you. Okay? I did not live through the Civil War. I know you think I'm old, but I'm not there. Okay? Um, but this is the most divided time I've ever lived in. But I can tell you what I hear all the time. And here's from our world. I read it in the newspapers. I read it on magazine covers. I read it on Twitter. I read it everywhere. If we would just love one another and get along, we'd be so good. We'd be fine. And that answer is absolutely true with one problem. Our world continues to ignore the reason why we don't love one another. And the reason we don't love one another is because the moment we as humans sinned against God, we have been fighting with each other ever since. We know this from the Bible. The moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they did it because they loved themselves more than they loved God. Loving ourselves, our own agenda, our own kingdom is as natural to us as breathing. The moment we come forth from the womb, we are crying, mine, my binky, my Legos, my phone, my way, my job, my games, my dreams, my hopes, you name it. And we know from the Bible that this natural self-centeredness causes us to look at everybody around us with sinful suspicions, believing the worst about them, and we're all naturally jealous and envy of one another. We all do this naturally. You, you know how you know it? Imagine just hypothetically next week, somebody in the church randomly contacts you and says, hey, can we get together for coffee? What immediately goes off in your brain? Uh, okay, what? 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 Okay, what's it? can I ask what the agenda is? What are we going to talk about? I want to get myself prepared. Do you have answers I may not have? Question I have, may I have can you, are you going to take me to the woodshed? What did I do? What did I do? Did I offend you? Did I hurt you? What did I do? Help me. And we begin to panic. You know what heaven is? Heaven's a world of love where that never exists. You go to coffee and you never think, what's their angle? In our natural humanity, the kind of love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 does not, and listen clearly, cannot flow from us. This is why the world has no answer for it. Has none. This is why the world fights, is divided virtually every topic, and why there seems to be rumors of war at every corner. It's why the world cannot apply 1 Corinthians 13 and say, can't we all just get along? We can't. You know why? We are sinners in rebellion against God. And the result is we will fight against one another any moment we can. As my friend Mike Keller would say, we get our jollies off of fighting with one another. And here's the craziness. In this chaotic, divided world is what Jesus came for. He came to reveal something to us and to give us a power to free us from our sinful selves and our fighting. Jesus came because God loves us. 
He came to reveal to us what true love looks like. He came to do what we naturally don't do. He came to perfectly love. Not just friends, not just family members, but even his own enemies. When he's hanging on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Boundless, unchanging, matchless love. See, we know love by this, that Jesus gave up his life for us. If you pull out the dictionary and you look for love, you should be seeing a picture of Jesus dying for his people. And here's what the amazing work of God's love does in us. When we believe that Jesus lived like this, that he died on the cross for us like this, the Spirit of God takes up residence within us and begins to change the trajectory or direction of our love. Notice how Paul put this in the second letter to the Corinthians. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Did you see the change of the direction of our love. We used to love ourselves. Now we say, no, we're we're living for you. Christ's love now controls us. His love for us, his love for friends, his love for family, but also his love for enemies. And this love controls us. It changes us from living for ourselves to living for him who died and was raised. That's what the gospel does. That's only what the gospel can do. See? The world cannot, you cannot manipulate this to just willpower yourself to do this. It cannot happen. This is gospel power. It's this power that frees us from self-love, from sinful suspicions, from envies, from jealousies, and from coveting. It frees us to love like Jesus loves. that's That's why, listen, that's why the church must be leading the way in love on how we are reconciled to one another and appreciate each other's differences because the world has no idea what that looks like. It is this power, this understanding of where love comes from that helps us walk in gospel-powered love and humility. See, 1 Corinthians 13 is the key text on helping churches represent Jesus well in this world. It's a key text. Churches need to live this. However, listen clearly, the key to understanding 1 Corinthians 13 is to see it through the light of the gospel. If you do not connect the gospel to 1 Corinthians 13, you've got no power and no change and no chance. It has to be connected to the power of Christ. We cannot do this without Christ. And that's why the the world cannot attain to it. And friends, listen, you want to talk about a lead-in for the gospel among your non-Christian friends? Have a cup of coffee with them and just say, hey, what do you think of all the craziness going on in our world, man? God, if we just all get along together. You know, isn't that funny? Do you really think we can? I don't know, I never thought of that. Do you really think you can? Do you have the ability to love well, I think I, I mean, I love my wife. Yeah, but do you love really people who slap you around? How about people say bad things about you? Uh, no, 
You don't have the ability to do that. Neither do I. You know what that reveals about us? We need a God who can. See, here, here's what seeing 1 Corinthians 13 through the lens of the gospel does for us in the church. When we come to church, we can begin to see everyone, everyone, who claims the name of Jesus as a person for whom Christ died. And they're filled with the Spirit of God. So we can hope all things, we can believe all things, we can endure all things. You know why? The Spirit is at work in them. He's doing His work among them. We can see everyone as a first-class citizen in the kingdom of God, no matter where they come from, the color of their skin, or their socioeconomic background. Can you hear the world clamoring? We want that! Yeah, they do. But they want it without the power of Christ. And rather in the church than coveting one another's gifts or possessions, here's what we can begin to do. We appreciate them. You know why? We go, looky there, God's at work. Look there, there, there's the teacher. Isn't that cool how they're using their gifts for the glory of God? Look here, here's a, here's a rich man using his gifts for the glory of God. Here's a poor man over here using his gifts for the glory of God. Instead of sitting around going, man, I wish I had their wealth or I wish I had their gifts or I don't like that they got elevated. We begin to appreciate the vast work of God among his people because God is putting people everywhere he wants them by his providence, for his glory, for the advancement of his gospel so that everybody around Christians go, look what God is doing. It's a big difference. And we begin to take to heart James's caution in James 3, which in my mind is one of the most cautious warnings in the New Testament for the church, and we better listen up clearly where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Listen, you want to see people do wacky, weird things in the church? You put jealousy, pride, selfish ambition, and sinful suspicions right in the middle of it. It'll destroy a church. But... Love, love on the other hand, that's peaceful and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, builds a church and keeps it together. You want to work on conflicts? You know how you work on conflicts? You come to conflict with this idea, the Spirit of God's at work in them, He's at work in me. Let's be open to reason of what God may do, and let me listen that I might learn, and let me see where God and the gospel can apply to this situation. And then if I've sinned against you, then let me ask you to forgive me because I I don't want to sin against a brother of Christ or a sister in Christ. And you say, because Christ forgave me, I gladly forgive you. And then we move on. See, that's love at work. It's love at work. That's what keeps a church together. See, here's what we can learn here very clearly. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us something, that we need the power of Christ to love like this. We need the power of Christ to be a church that mirrors 1 Corinthians 13. See, I want you to look at the chapter. When you look at the chapter, we again, we take it out of context. We go individually, apply it. So, you know, say things like, um, uh, put your name in replace of love. You know, so David is patient. Mm, not so much. David is kind. Sometimes, depends on who it is. David is not rude. Well, it depends on if I've just had a really nice drink. You know, whatever maybe, right? 
I mean, that was a joke, right? Um, okay, and we go, individually apply it. Here's another question, though. What if Paul's saying something different? What if he's saying, Corinthian church, CLF, he's looking at it corporately. Because it's a letter written to a church. So we could also substitute the church's name in there. CLF is not jealous, is not rude, does not seek its own. And what it does, every time you do this, it reveals the need you have for the power of Christ. The book of 1 Corinthians is really fascinating because you're going to notice something. There's no theological issues addressed in the book until chapter 15. Every problem in the Corinthian church except for one was relational. The Corinthians did not have a theological problem. They had a love problem. They didn't have a gift problem. They had a love problem. And here's what I want us to take as a church away from this. By God's grace, you, this church, we've been taught very well. Right? You're, you're in theological classes if you're in them. And some of you go, man, some of these theological classes feel like I'm, I'm swimming. I mean, I'm drowning in what I'm learning. Some I agree, some I don't agree. Right? It's fine. But it's, it's depth of theology. The issue is not theology. I would also say the wonderful joy of being at CLF is by God's grace, we've been protected from, from not loving well. We love pretty well. But here's something about the Bible that it tells us about love, that it doesn't tell us about anything else. He told the Thessalonians, I see that you're excelling in love, but seek to abound in this work all the more. There's always things to improve and abound in, in love. And the way we do that is we never lose sight of our need for the power of Christ. The moment we lose sight of our need for Christ, we the moment you'll start seeing it just fraying on the edges. The humility, the dependence of this understanding of the gospel, that this cannot happen without the power of God at work. Let's never lose sight of the power of the gospel. Never lose sight of the fact there's only one who loved perfectly and his name is Jesus. Never lose sight of the fact that God has given us a way to stay connected, which is biblical love that is empowered by the work of the gospel. So never lose sight of that. Let's pray. As we pray, even though this was written to a church, I think it's important just to step back and the Lord has been convicting and stirring you individually about where maybe love needs to be improved. And I just want to caution you. You need Christ to change that. Acknowledge before God where you're, you're impatient, you're unkind, you're rude, or you're jealous. And ask God for the power of God to change. Because He he would not have called you to change if He wouldn't give you the power to change. 
Father, thank you for showing us what love is. And thank you for showing us our desperate need for the power of Christ. Forgive us where we have been arrogant, where we have been self-righteous, where we've been unkind. Forgive us where we have exalted one thing above another and we've missed caring for all. And help us to change. I thank you for the love that has been brought in this church and the joy that we have of being together. But Lord, we ask you, we ask you, Lord, that we would abound in this work of love more and more. For the glory of your great name, for the advancement of your gospel. And Lord, so that the world around us can see and look in and go, wow, I don't see how people that are so different can get along. And we can say, well, we can because there's one name under heaven by which we give ourselves. And his name is Jesus. Father, we, we need to be changed by your love for us <clears throat> so that we can display and we can reveal your love for others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.